Since the beginning of the pandemic, the American Medical Association has led the fight against COVID-19. As the nation copes with the effects of the crisis, we continue to offer tireless advocacy and expert resources. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. This episode is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Today, we're talking about COVID long haulers, people who haven't fully recovered from COVID-19 weeks or even months after symptoms first appear, and what we know about the long-term impact of this disease. I'm joined today by Hannah Lockman, a COVID long hauler from Louisville, Kentucky, and Dr. Mady Hornig, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at Columbia University Melman School of Public Health in New York. Dr. Hornig is studying COVID long haulers and is a COVID long hauler herself. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Uh, Ms. Lockman, let's start with you. Why don't you take us back to your initial COVID diagnosis and when, when did that happen and how did your illness play out? So where it started for me is I... Um, I, I started getting pain in my chest, like deep in my chest when I was working and it just started getting worse that night, um, to the point where I was just in excruciating pain. Um, so I went to the ER and, uh, they initially thought I had, um, bronchitis, but I, um, was discharged and then ended up there the next day. And, I was admitted with a pneumonia diagnosis. Um, I did test negative for the flu and RSV, but at the time, um, this was early March, so there were very limited COVID tests in my state of Kentucky. Um, So they did refuse to test me for COVID at that time because I didn't have the um, necessary uh, parameters, um, there. So, uh, I was admitted with pneumonia. Um, and then after that, it's just been like an ongoing cycle of, uh, ending up in the ER and, um, you know, getting treatment and then being discharged. Um, how long have those, uh, how long has this process lasted for you today? Um, it is, I just past seven months um, on the 12th. So it's been a very, very long time. So that's uh, seven months. I think you told us that uh, 16 emergency department trips, three hospitalizations. Um, so that has really been, uh, that is a long haul, literally. Um, yeah. how, how has this continued to be characterized for you? Um, what is really lingering now in like this this current time is I'm having headaches. I've had headaches every single day for, uh, since June. And I also have, um, issues with brain fog as they're describing it. Like I'll mix up like information. I can't remember words. I have problems with like, it's weird. It's like sentence structure. Like I'll get confused about how words are supposed to go together. Um, I have like shortness of breath. I've had, I have issues with like tachycardia. Like if I, if I get up and move too fast, I end up breathless and like my heart is going to explode. It's not really going to explode, but it feels like it is. 
Um, so really, you know, I used to be healthy and it's just like, my body is like kind of crashing. Um, another issue is I have rashes and then I have this burning feeling. It feels like a sunburn. I get on my face, like most evenings, uh, it's really like excruciating and keeps me up some nights. So it's just been just a random mixed bag of issues. Oh, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Uh, doc, Dr. Hornig, talk to us a little bit about how your illness has played out and, you know, hearing Ms. Lockman's story, is this something that you're seeing a lot uh, from other reports? Oh, absolutely. And also from my, from my own. So, you know, what Ms. Lockman described was this sort of panoply of all sorts of symptoms affecting all different organ systems, all, all different bodily systems. And we see that in several of the surveys that have been uh, put out onto the web and are now being published that are patient-driven. Um, so Body Politics, Survivor Corps, I understand Ms. Lockman maybe is involved with another, with another one um, and some publications. And so the symptoms are very diverse and uh, it's hard to really thread them all together, you know, in medicine, I'm a, you know, physician scientist, a psychiatrist by training, but do a lot of bench work, lab bench work and, and on infectious diseases and immune disorders. But when we're thinking about complex dis illnesses, we're, um, there's this hypothesis called Occam's razor, which is this idea that you are trying to going to be, you know, get the most economical or parsimonious simplest explanation that ties everything together kind of like you pull a thread and all of a sudden everything is in view and understandable with one explanation i'm looking in this pile of symptoms and you know i just can't find occam's razor and many of us are really perplexed for me i don't even really know whether i can reliably say when my illness started because I had unusual symptoms uh, for what is in the case definition, the official case definition of, of COVID-19, um, or that weren't really very well known at, you know, at, at the time. And you know, so in retrospect, I uh, do think that it started earlier uh, than you know, we had sort of uh, you know, placed it. My, my disorder started with a tickle in my throat. Um, I also had a very strange one rib muscle that was inflamed and extremely painful, just, just one. And it was so bad that I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't flex to get out of bed. I had to roll out of bed. It was as if I had injured myself. Um, that was followed by... Uh, scrape what I thought were scrapes on my toes. It was before this phenomenon of COVID toes had been described. And uh, it was, uh, I just, you know, said, oh, well, you're walking around without shoes. You got to wear slippers. You know, you must have scraped your toes or something. Until one day I had to leave the house to go to the pharmacy and my toes were so swollen I couldn't get shoes on. And that was unusual. And then I had a fever that lasted 12 days, uh, which, you know, which started another week that was at the end of uh, April. So I'm nearing this, uh, you know, six month mark now. And we 
uh, are looking at all of these symptoms, you know, trying to see, even if we don't know the explanation, we're trying to see whether the uh, grouping and clustering of these symptoms that are happening in long COVID are potentially a, uh, on a pathway for some individuals towards something called myalgic encephalomyelitis. Now that's a mouthful. It's mm. popularly known as chronic fatigue syndrome um, or MECFS is, it is the abbreviation. Well, and let me uh, just ask you, you know, obviously you had your own experience to draw off on, uh, draw upon, you know, when did you first hear about the concept of you know, a long hauler and realize that there's a, you know, a whole group of people. Uh, and then that obviously inspired your research, which you started to talk about. What are you finding here? Yeah, well, it's actually backwards because I had already been doing the research. I've been, a, I've been studying MECFS for 20 years, approximately 15, 20 years, um, or even longer. Um, and I have, uh, seen the reports in MECFS for a uh, viral onset to the illness. About three quarters of people who develop MECFS have had their symptoms for six months or more, and that's why that time period is important. Um, and But three quarters of them uh, note that they've had viral type symptoms at the onset of their illness. The most common one, but it doesn't happen with everyone, the most common one that's reported is Epstein-Barr virus, which is the cause of something called, we call kissing disease or infectious mono, infectious mononucleosis. And that um, in about 10 to 12% of people who get uh, infectious mono with an Epstein-Barr virus infection will end up with a course that eventually get be diagnosed as MECFS. And so this chronic disabling, very disa disabling disorder. And in fact, I had with a group that is focused on research and advocacy for MECFS, we had put out uh, to on Capitol Hill, um, as well as uh, a, a piece that I had uh, I published with a journalist uh, by the name of David Teller, we already published in Health Affairs, you know, a piece about the possibility of this persistence and you know, long duration symptoms. And uh, we had only heard a little bit at that time. This was, you know, mid to late April, right? And then reports started to build more and more, and it started to, uh, you know, really uh, show us that there was uh, a very large group of individuals, but probably a very diverse group. And so we can talk about that. So, you know, one of the things that Ms. Lockman, you know, you, you mentioned that you were diagnosed with pneumonia, right? And so, yeah. um, and uh, did you have any, I, I, I can't recall if you mentioned whether you needed any uh, oxygen or any additional types of measures for, you know, to boost your, respiratory system? Um, I was given just like supplemental oxygen occasionally because my oxygen uh, did did drop. I was experiencing, you know, the severe chest pain. Um, I also had like pleur pleurisy mm -hmm. and like costochondritis type pains. So it was just like my ribs and my back just hurt endlessly. Um, 
and I've had like issues like shortness of breath, but it's like my oxygen has stayed pretty stable, which is good. But um, I never needed like the forced oxygen or anything. Yeah, we want you know. So one of the things that we're we're sort of trying to sort out now, we're comparing um, the symptoms that are uh, observed in individuals who have di a diagnosis of ME-CFS, which can affect any body system, but a very prominent, something that you mentioned was this type of brain fog, problems paying attention, short-term memory types of issues. That's something that's very prominent in many people with ME-CFS. Other things that are also common are pain issues and so forth. But what may be different in, uh, in some people who have long COVID, maybe the direct effects of the virus on the lungs and perhaps also on the heart in mm -hmm. some individuals. Is that's when they're doing some um, different types of imaging of heart and lungs for, for individuals who may not even really have been aware that they had uh, been infected with this virus, they're seeing that there's can be damage to the heart and lungs. And that may be a somewhat different long-term course than this other disorder, which we call, you know, as I said, MECF. Well, Ms. Lockman, you serve as an administrator for online communities to help connect long haulers to each other. What, uh, why are these communities needed and what are you seeing on these platforms and are the numbers growing? So with the online communities, um, until until I first found them, I felt so alone. I felt like I was crazy. Like, okay, I was sick in March and it's April and I'm I'm still sick. What's going on? And um, thankfully, somebody had had talked about it in a in an article I read. And I um, connected with the communities first in May, and it was just like this feeling of relief, you know, I'm, I'm not alone. And at that time, there were only like maybe 500 people in the group, in, and that was early May. And then now, um, between our two communities, um, we are nearing 10,000 members, which is both, you know, like, it's, it's kind of a division of it's good that, you know, they have a place, but it's awful that they had to find a place. And um, it's, it's really, we support each other. We discuss our symptoms. Like I have this really weird thing going on. Oh, I have that going on too. And it's like, you know, we, we discuss it with our doctors and everything. And it's just like, this kind of forms a connection between everything. Um, because there's somebody, there's, there's lots of somebody's out, out there that are going through the same thing. Um, so it's really, it's kind of like bonding through trauma, which is a weird way to describe it. But, um, but it's definitely been essential, um, both in my uh, physical and my mental health. Um, we share resources, um, and I've made friends uh, from from these communities. Uh, I I talk to them more than my other friends because we can we can relate to each other. You know, 
are you having a bad day today? Um, you know, just reaching out and making that human connection. It's just so important when you're, when you're this level of sick and you used to be, you used to be a healthy person. Like I used to be a runner and now I can't dream of running. I can barely go on, you know, a 15 minute walk and some people can't even do that. And it's just, it's just having that, that connection to somebody else that's going through the same thing. Well, Dr. Hornig, last question for you. Yeah. I was um, you know, what, what do you want physicians to know about COVID long haulers? Well, I, uh, I first wanted to pick up on what Ms. Lockman mentioned, just to say that as a physician who is going through this uh, herself and, you know, having um, experienced all of these mysterious symptoms, I'm really grateful for the energy uh, and uh, that people have found some somewhere within their long COVID selves, which is very difficult uh, to create these uh, opportunities for people to exchange information because it's essential for us uh, to uh, both those who are trying to study this scientifically, but also even as a patient myself, to have some uh, way of validating that what you're going through, you know, even if it may not be a part of long COVID, because we all have all sorts of other issues as well, and we're trying to sort this out, uh, there's still this opportunity to really gain uh, the, you know, this uh, sense into that you can fight against the gaslighting. There's this medical gaslighting that occurs. I got this as a physician. I got this from one of my own docs. Um, you know, saying, well, you know, uh, since we had tested the hypothesis that my uh, period's a very high heart rate, tachycardia, right, which I still have, um, where I just sit here and my pulse will go up to 110, 130, you know, um, and just sitting and doing nothing. And we ruled out that there was any strange ar arrhythmia that was concerning of the heart. And we ruled out that my thyroid hormone, which was, you know, I've been on thyroid hormone replacement that we, you know, we took that off completely. So uh, without any thyroid hormone um, and uh, I had no energy, but I had tachycardia still. And so my doctor said, well, you know, now we know that there must be some hidden you know, uh, unresolved stress or anxiety or problem that's causing this symptom. And I'm like, no, I really don't think so. I want to find Occam's razor. I want to find that thread or that razor that's going to cut through all of the, you know, heterogeneity. The, uh, the patient, uh, patients really need to know that they have, um, they, that they have commu you know, community. We need to educate physicians about all of the different possible scenarios that can occur after uh, COVID-19. Um, it's not just you know, recovery or death. There's so much in between. And individuals who've had pneumonia or uh, who have symptoms that suggest they may have heart damage that they really may have heart damage and they may need a different type of uh, rehabilitation or medical treatment than individuals with ME-CFS, right? So with ME-CFS, 
don't want to push through it. You don't want to put them through a graded exercise program uh, because they have what's called post-exertional malaise. They exert a little bit, taking a walk, taking a shower can set them back for for days. And I have to dole out my energy as well. And I'm on, I call it the toddler schedule. I take self-enforced naps and I'm only angry because I can't get a good tantrum in like a real toddler would. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's the only way that I can, uh, can, you know, to, to get through. But I, it, and the symptoms are very perplexing. Sudden hypertension, crazy crisis level hypertension. Um, the tachycardia, he had, uh, weird sensory things, lesions on my fingers with strange type of itching, you know, and I still have COVID dose. <laughs> well, Dr. Hornig and Ms. Lockman, your, your stories are incredibly moving. And uh, Dr. Hornig, I hope you do find uh, your Occam's razor and an explanation for this and to both of you that you begin to feel like yourselves again. Uh, that's it for today's COVID-19 update. Thanks so much, Dr. Hornig and Ms. Lockton, for being here, sharing your stories. We'll be back soon with another update. For resources on COVID-19, go to ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us and please take care. This content was originally published as part of AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.